HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Copper and Kings, pure copper pot distilled American brandy aged in Kentucky bourbon barrels. For more information, visit copperandkings.com. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store located at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes. You can follow me on Instagram at thefoodballer. Today is episode number 23 of Feast Your Ears. Um... Thank you for listening. If you've listened to any of them, <laughs> or if this is your first one, welcome. Uh, today, I have in the studio at Heritage Radio with me Andrew Gerson, who is the chef and head of culinary programming at the Brooklyn Brewery. Um, you can find Andrew at the brewery most uh, most events mm-hmm. that are there. You can find him there, uh, often serving up some of his food. You can find a lot of stuff online, and we'll we'll get to that in a, in a few minutes about what he does. Thanks, Andrew, for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me out. So I, I generally start my interviews by asking people, um, you know, when you get on a plane somewhere and you're making chit-chat as the plane takes off because you can't have your laptop out and you don't have your headphones on, uh, and you're talking to the person next to you, what do you tell them when they say, oh, what do you do? So yeah, with the MASH tour that we do, which is an arts and culture tour uh, that goes to nine different international cities, I'm on planes quite a bit yep. uh, with the brewery. So there are moments when I try not to talk, knowing that I have a crazy week ahead of me. Um, But I tell them that I further our vision of bringing beer back to its rightful place at the table. So for so many years, Garrett Oliver, our brewmaster, has been one of the leading voices in food and beer pairing. And I've been with the brewery now over three years and sort of taking our culinary programming and that relationship between beer and food um, and that integration of food and beer pairing to the next level. Basically. Yeah, it, and I mean, Garrett has been at the forefront, I think, of sort of calling for that. I mean, the Brooklyn Brewery, I think, has been at the forefront of a lot of things, been at the forefront of the word Brooklyn becoming a sort of cool Absolutely. branding uh, opportunity, uh, at the forefront of really great beer in this country, kind of coming back after the 70s and 80s, being real rock bottom for, for good beer to drink. And Garrett wrote a book called The Brewmaster's Table that is, in fact, all about 
that mission of beer being something to pair with food and being something you should, in fact, think of not necessarily over wine or cocktails, but alongside. When you think of what you're going to drink with what you're going to eat, beer should enter into that canon And as I well. think it's part of the greater culture. And if you see the evolution of Williamsburg or Brooklyn and this sort of artistic haven, this space all about collaboration and coming together and to some degree counterculture, so much of what our tour embodies, so much of what the Brooklyn Brewery stands for is creating that sense of community, community and celebrating all of these aspects through the lens of beer. So beer, I mean, for me, it's pairing. It usually involves food, but it's also with artists, with producers, with brewers, with so many of those other dynamic roles that make up our community. So I think beer for me has become so much more. It's this sort of, you know, liquid that binds, if you will, that brings people <laughs> together to celebrate all of the things that make our community so vibrant. Yeah. The MASH tour this year, where is it going? Where are you going to be? So we're starting off overseas. Uh, we're starting off in London, then going straight to Stockholm. Then we loop back. We're doing Boston, Philly, D.C., Austin, Chicago, and New Orleans, and also Paris. So that's the new addition for the year. Wow. Which I'm very excited it's for. It's a heavy schedule. When do you start? So I'm having a baby this week, potentially now, who knows? Um, it's kind of wild. So we push the tour back. Normally we start right around this time of the year and we're kind of condensing things a little bit as well as condensing our programming. So we start May 11th, I want to say, in London. Oh, that's good. That'll give you a couple of months in Helena, a couple of months. Helena, to a couple of months to, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, can, we can switch away from beer for a minute. Do you, uh, do you guys know what you're having? We don't. It's going to be the biggest that's surprise awesome. of my life. Oh, man, that's, we that's the, great. Uh, I, I, I applaud that decision. Both of my children, we didn't know whether they were going to be boys or girls. Um, I, it was told to me by a friend um, before I had kids. He already had kids when, when my wife was first pregnant that it's the you know most surprises in life are bad news. Yeah. <laughs> you get a phone call that someone got hurt. You get, you know, like it's bad news. But the sex of your child, the gender of your child is something that's no matter what the answer is, it's still good news. So, and my, my wife is obsessed with the grayscale. So everything in the baby's room is either black, white or gray. So <laughs> it kind of doesn't matter at a certain point, whether it's, you know, a little boy wearing a onesie that's got some pink on it. You know, I mean, I mean we, we actually, one of the reasons that we felt like it was also really good is people wanted to give us so much stuff for the baby. And we had been advised by friends, of course, living in the city. It's right. And we had people, you know, family out in suburbia with garages and attics yeah, and places like to store stuff. It's, it's yeah. Insanity. And it's much hard. People get very confused. So they don't know what to buy you. Yeah. And so rather than buying you like a gray thing, if you tell them you don't know what you're having, if you tell them, boy, they buy you something blue. If you tell them, girl, they buy you something pink. Mm -hmm. If you tell them you don't know, they don't buy you anything. So Right. Or they actually look at your registry and <laughs> right. buy the things that yeah. you potentially want or maybe need. <laughs> but no, and again, going back to community in Williamsburg, there's this amazing mommy community. So my wife is on all these boards and yep. I'm going to meet all these neighbors of ours and picking up car seats and boxes full of clothes and boxes of books on the street and like it's really amazing to see people just reaching out and sharing the things and repurposing and reusing what they what they have yeah so and we've bought very little and have awesome. an entire page room full <laughs> of shit it's crazy and then you'll find on the other side of that now that i've been through that a couple of times in different iterations of stuff there's an incredible amount of freedom that you feel because you don't have to put the stuff in the car 
to then take it and get rid of it, right? Mm -hmm. Someone comes to you and they're like, oh, you can use this. This is amazing. Oh, take this stuff from me. I don't want it anymore. And then you look around you're like, oh, man, I got so much space for all the new stuff. Three months, yeah, we'll have boxes and boxes of infant attire and and other things (laughs) to to share with the world. Uh, What is – what's your background? What did you do before you became the house chef at the brewery? Uh, So before becoming the chef of the brewery – I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a long story. I don't know how far back we want to go well, I mean, here. But were, were you in restaurants previously? So I, I'd been working in food for the last 12 years. Um, I did a lot of stints in a lot of restaurants and realized that the restaurant role of a chef, I'd been an executive chef. I'd sort of worked my way up through many different positions and loved the kitchen. Um, sort of the main draw or passion of mine behind food is supporting local food systems. So along with that, I'd done a lot of work in Philadelphia. Um with the Food Trust, with Fair Food, with so many different organizations, working very closely with Slow Food. I was kind of at a point in my culinary career, if you will, where I was a little confused and knew that I wanted to stay in food um, and wasn't sure how to, how to best do that, um, sort of outside of a traditional chef's role. And I found the University of Gastronomic Sciences um, and did a two-year master's there in Bra, Italy. Um, I'd lived in Italy before, right after college. I graduated from Skidmore and moved to an 88-acre organic farm right outside of Rome and spent a year working in these beautiful gardens and being able to take that and take beautiful product to the kitchen. Um, and my stepmom's Italian, so I spent a lot of time growing up over there. And, yeah, at the University of Gastronomic Sciences, I got to work with Ann Noble, who created the, the wine flavor wheel. So much of what we were doing was celebrating local producers, showcasing them, but also learning to taste, learning to pair, learning all these nuances and also that simplicity of Italian production. Um, and I think that translates a lot to my role at the brewery and being able to understand the relationship of beverage pairing. I mean, obviously, mostly what we do is, is beer, but have a strong background in, in wine and spirits and sort of their interaction and how they can elevate a dish um, or an experience overall. Do you use the beer from the brewery in your cooking as well? So I try not to. I think food and beer pairing has come a long way. I think, you know, first thing you talk about, even just simple pairings like cheese and charcuterie, oh, well, that's that's a space for wine. So I, I think cooking with beer, although, you know, you look at Belgian traditions, you look at so many places where beer is a central ingredient to cooking, and I think there are applications. I think it almost does a disservice to a dish. It's too easy to say this Saison works really well because you used it in a muscle broth or something like that. So there are times when I think it's appropriate, you know, certain braises. And I'll use first runnings a lot or, or different levels of or different applications of beer and not in its always in its final form. Beer, either with yeast or, or hop additions or carbonation. But again, I, I try and steer away from it, not because I don't think it's delicious, sure, but because I think it does a disservice to the general public and folks who aren't that knowledgeable. Um, it's just too easy to, to make that association sure. with a pairing. What about the ingredients that are used to make beer? Do you cook with those? Yeah. I mean, I love to do barley dishes. I, I make a lot of yeast sauces and different um, things like that. I'm really interested. I've been working with this guy, Jensen Cummings, out of Colorado, He's doing a ton of ferments. I, know, I mean, you're a passionate fermenter. I, I love to play as well. I'm starting to utilize beer yeasts wow. uh, to control those fermentations a little bit rather than the, the wild lacto um, ferments. So that's something I'm just delving into. Um, but, yeah, I, I do like – I mean, I've, I've done some meals that are sort of centered around beer ingredients. Uh, the beer I just brought you are improved old-fashioned. 
um, is another example. I, there's so many amazing botanicals in there. It's a beer based off of the recipe for an improved old fashioned. Um, being able to work with whiskey pig distillery, <clears throat> taking different elements or nodes um, from this. So I did, you know, for our improved old fashioned party, two whole roasted pigs, a um, bunch of pickled cruciferous vegetables, so all different cauliflowers and Romanescos and things like that. Um, and a really nice uh, squash emulsion with some of the uh, Momofuku hozan oh, folded in there excellent. for a nice little umami bomb. So I think taking inspiration, using some of those botanicals in the pickling liquid. But again, I think there's so many levels of pairing nuance that you can do. You can cut, you can contrast, you can sort of harmonize these flavors that you don't always need to utilize what's in the bottle. But I take a lot of inspiration from the process. There's something very akin to the brewing process to cooking and sure. culinary application. So I, I take a lot of inspiration from our beers, but tend to not use base ingredients as much. Right. Yeah. And I was interested. I mean, I know you guys, the, the brewery produces an incredible amount of spent grain, for yeah. instance. And, you know, years ago we were working on trying to get that to some farms. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, very difficult because you have to move it in time. And if it starts to ferment, you know, there's all these, it starts to re-ferment, there's all these issues with it. Um, and I know in the homebrew community, there's a lot of experimentation with that because people feel like, well, I have this thing that's still edible and still has nutrients in, in it. And what can I do with it making of, you know, making spent grain porridge or making... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Breads, I've, I've, like that. Nina here at Roberta's, the head baker, is a good friend, and we've talked about using some spent grain in cookies, in different breads. Um, we send all of our spent grain to different farms, but I have a good buddy, Alex Buckner, who runs a company, Local 215, and he's managing a farm as well in Princeton, New Jersey. We're trying to close that circuit, hmm. or sorry, close that circle, <laughs> um, and get some of these pigs that are being finished um, on our spent grain and be able to utilize those for different events. Um, yeah, so there's some great farms working with some awesome heritage breeds that are starting to do that. Um, I just spoke to the folks up at Whistle Pig. They're raising a ton of Mangalisa, hmm. and they would love to start using our spent grain on that. So it's just trying to figure out getting them those quantities. It's the logistics right. of yeah. the situation, unfortunately, that are, there's yeah. some barriers to entry, but yeah, we are, we definitely supply all of our spent grain to farms. It's just getting that, those animals back. Right. Um, and being right. able to utilize them, which is something that'll be I'm so really exciting. Though. About. Yeah. When, when you get that together, it'll be really, it will be really exciting to know that the, you know, the leftovers from one thing created this other product yeah, that and there's, can get used. I mean, utilizing, I, I've been really getting into Japanese ferments and there's some new books that just came out that are phenomenal. And looking at some of those miso applications or sake lees applications and taking whole vegetables and just submerging them in spent grain. Uh, so I'm creating a little lab in the in the back of oh, wow. uh, the warehouse with a, with a fridge that I repurposed. And we'll finally get some of the fermentation projects <laughs> yeah. out of my kitchen so Elena doesn't kill me. <laughs> um, so I'm looking forward to doing a lot more and being able to use some of our spent grain as one of those applications. Gosh, you know, I wonder. I've, I've tried to do it, and, and my wife, Taylor, has she made me stop. I've tried twice, and it never really worked out. But I've tried to do a Nuka Zuki. Yeah which you use rice hulls for. And I've tried to do that at home twice. And mm-hmm. it's a very complicated, I mean, it's, it to me is like the nadir of 
pickles. I mean, they're my favorite pickles, but really good ones that are actually well-made. I've only had once in the United States. I've had them a couple times in Japan, and they're very hard to make because you need to sort of breed the right bacteria Mm -hmm. in the pickling bed. And traditionally, it was kept under the floorboards in the kitchen of the Japanese house, and you would mix it every single day. And, you know, in the modern life, and this was before I had kids. I mean, now that I have two children and business and this radio show and all these other things, I mean, you know. That's on the chore list, though. It's just like lift up the floorboards and start mixing kids before school every morning. You know, and and so I'm wondering now that we talk about this, if you could use spent grain as the nuka bed and if you could develop those bacteria in that because you do have a lot of holes in there already along with the germ. So, And I think, I mean, that when we – there's so much of a level of of experimentation and play and I think now more than ever there are all these resources. There's such a sort of community around – fermentation or really every craft that you want to do so you can find information but i think you know look at our our ghost bottle programs and i think now we have such a a huge amount of barrel aging going on we have eric brown who just took over for molly browning um running our barrel age program and i'm getting to work really closely with him and i think that level of experimentation and play and not always being successful i have this this sort of space where i can experiment and that's fun and some stuff works out really well and some things you don't really want yeah, to taste you, you, have, you have to be okay with, with those experimentations. It is, I find it also really exciting that, you know, even though we have all this information on the internet and you can pull up a hundred recipes for just about anything, even however weird you want on your phone, there is still that opportunity to say, well, I'm going to try and make this thing that either someone made across the world and I don't know if it's going to work here right. in this climate and with mm-hmm. the, you know, with the bacteria that's in the air here and it may work and it may not. And if it does... You know, there's an incredible amount of excitement and, and value and deliciousness to that. And if it doesn't, hopefully you've at least learned something. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I mean, the beauty is that you're learning something. Yeah. And I think mostly it's our, our failures that end up teaching us the most rather than the successes. Like, oh, I did this. It's easy. Let's move on to the next thing. But it's when you mess up that you really think about your troubleshooting. You're figuring out why this happened and, and how to make it better the next time. So. We're going to take a a short break and hear from our sponsor. And when we come back, uh, we'll keep figuring out new fermentation with spent grain. (laughs) Sounds good. I'm excited. This is the story of men and women who shed not only their clothes, but also their... Hey, what's up? This is Jack Inslee, the executive producer of Heritage Radio Network, also the host of Full Service Radio. And I want to talk to you about brandy. Uh, I was lucky enough to visit Louisville, and we all know Kentucky is whiskey territory. However, the best thing I had to drink was brandy. I got to visit Copper and King's Distillery, and they make pure copper pot distilled American brandy aged in Kentucky bourbon barrels, matured with rock and roll. That's right. Sonic aging. They're playing music to the barrels. The stuff is double distilled, non-chill filtered, unadulterated by bois, sugar, or caramel color. And this stuff is feisty, rambunctious, with a long, smooth finish. The stuff isn't made exactly in the style of an international brandy or a cognac. It's more along the lines of an American whiskey. I can really be honest here and tell you, I'm not just reading you an ad, I'm giving you a tip. American brandy, you're not seeing it everywhere. Copper and Kings is doing it incredibly well. And they're cool people. 
The distillery is full of incredible art. Like I said, they're playing rock and roll to the barrels. So again, Copper and Kings, pure copper, pot distilled, American brandy, aged in Kentucky bourbon barrels. That's copperandkings.com. Drink it neat, put it in a cocktail, sub it for your brown spirits, experiment, have fun, get funky. This stuff is awesome. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I've been speaking with Andrew Gerson, who is the chef and head of culinary programming at the Brooklyn Brewery here in Brooklyn. Um, So before the break, we were talking a little bit about pickling and using uh, spent grain and other things for for fermentation. Obviously, Andrew works at the brewery where there's fermentation Mm -hmm. 24-7, 365, um, all the time. I wanted to. You're from Philly, and I wanted to talk yeah, talk a little bit about about Philly. I, I feel like I see Philly in in the news or in the in the food media quite a bit these days, and it seems like it's really sort of on the map. And not that it wasn't before. It's got lots of great old old food traditions, but you know, people call it the fifth borough, which I feel like is you know is you know I'm not one of those New Yorkers who's like oh you can't attach Philly to New York. I just feel like it's not really nice for Philly. Like Philly should stand on its own as a city. No, I mean it's, it's close. My dad, you know, growing up before he moved to London when I was seven, would commute every day uh, to New York and work there and come back to Northwest sure. Philly. You know, every day with that sort of three hour commute or two you know hour yeah. and a half, but three hours all day. Right. Yeah, I think the Philly food scene has grown incredibly by leaps and bounds. There's really talented chefs there doing incredible things. Um, and you have, you know, Steve Posis and Steven Starr and guys that sort of laid that framework almost 30 years ago now. Um, and Starr now, ha- you know, is a huge yeah. restaurant group, yep. but laid the ground for Vetri and Garces and so many other guys that have allowed, you know, and you're seeing their chefs and people that train with them for years. You know, Adam escaped and is down down the street at the Brooklyn Bread Lab now. Yeah, um, he was with Mark for nine years. But there's so much talent, and so many of these chefs that came up and now have amazing chefs that have worked under them for years that are opening incredible spots. You have Mike Salmanoff. I think Zahav is one of the best restaurants in the country. I've heard great things. I haven't been. It's the meal is just it's epic. It's amazing. Um, but I think it's a lot of highbrow, lowbrow. Hmm. Um, I worked when I came back from my master's program in Italy. I was dead set on a fresh pasta food truck and thought food trucks were sort of the answer to being able to supply affordable local food, support your local producers, showcase them with price points that were accessible and creating food access. So I worked really hard in starting my truck and running these pop-ups and realized very quickly that the infrastructure in Philly and the legislation was so fucked up and backwards that I ended up founding or co-founding the Philadelphia Mobile Food Association and a trade association for food trucks and Philly is one of those cities where there's so much happening, and it's so screwed up. There's over three or thirty thousand abandoned lots. There's neighborhoods where houses are just falling apart. You know, Center City is a, a tight knit network, but then you go out to South Philly or North Philly, and it's it's really run down. There's there's so much need for development, and not that gentrification is the answer, but there are neighborhoods that are constantly improving, and people who are taking risks and opening businesses in these neighborhoods and food ventures and, and all other sorts that are allowing really amazing growth. It's sure. still a really affordable city. Um, 
there's density issues. I think it's hard to sustain right. businesses there. Um, Although, I mean, you know, coming out of the, the retail world that I'm in, you know, the oldest cookware store in America is Fanti's. Yeah, which and has it's, been it's, I mean, since running a fresh 1900s. pasta business, I yeah. spent a lot of time at, at Fonte's. Yeah. Um, really good friends. I mean, you look at Emilio Bignucci and yep. what he's doing um, with the Bruno Brothers and I mean, their growth. And he's just, I mean, he, he's one of my favorite people on earth. I love him. Um, <laughs> and they've expanded and they have a bunch of stores now and they are a big part of that Philadelphia culture. But I've walked that ninth street corridor, which used to be, I mean, still is these open air markets and you've seen it change and you've seen these neighborhoods evolve from, you know, Italian American communities to Latin American or Latin communities to Southeast Asian communities. And slowly those food cultures and histories are blending and melding and you can get incredible tacos. And I mean, I love Vietnamese food. I spent a lot of time in Vietnam, Philly, I mean, besides bunker, <laughs> like right. that, you don't want to eat Vietnamese in New York, but yeah. Philly has an incredible Vietnamese community. Um, I'd say outside of New Orleans or Houston, one of the best in the country. Yeah. Houston. Um, I mean, it's funny you mentioned Houston. I just had a conversation with someone last week about how great they're, how great the Southeast Asian food is in Houston. It's <laughs> awesome. I mean, you look at Chris Shepard and I think it's so cool to see these chefs taking nuances from the local community, which is so diverse now. And that's happening. I mean, it's happening in every city these days. It's not exclusive to, to Brooklyn or Philly or any of these other cities, but being able to incorporate that, I mean, Mofo in new Orleans and Mike Gulata, we got to go down and film a segment with him and there's, they have the largest Vietnamese expat community in the in the world or in the United States. Right. And it's incredible. What used to be this part of sort of East Nola um, and separated on the other side of the bridge is now like making its way into Creole and Cajun culture and becoming, you know, part of the food culture there. Yeah. Um, so that's something that's really interesting, but yeah, I mean, that on. makes a great deal of sense, right? You have a, a very similar, I mean, in a way you have a similar geography, right? Oh, totally. I mean, you have, they're both deltas. Rivers, they're, they're, I mean, yeah, they're exactly. very similar. There's a seafood culture there. Yep. Uh, I mean, all these guys were either fishermen or farmers yep. and came over in 71 or after the fall of Saigon. Yeah. And basically, yeah, I mean, it's almost, it's almost on the same geographic lines. Like, yep. yeah, it's very, very similar. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you're, you're, you recently, there's a recipe up on the brewery site um, from the launch party for the Improved Old Fashioned where you roasted these two pigs, right? But you mm -hmm. had a bunch of leftovers. And you took some Vietnamese influence with what you did with them. Yeah. So, I mean, pig terrine, we had these beautiful 40-pound roasters they're basically all collagen at that point. It's just like this soft, beautiful thing. So I thought, you know, I'm making stock. So we made ramen broth and all these things. And then basically picking through that, you know, similar to you guys, you don't want to waste anything. You want to honor yep. these beautiful animals. So I picked every single <laughs> little bit of meat left and there's so much collagen and, and it just basically, I mean, it's, it's sort of a hacked version of a terrine, yeah. but it, you know, really nice. So being able to just char, um, some ginger and some shallots and some jalapenos, throw them in there. Little red boat fish sauce is kind of my, always the go-to. We, um, we keep a bottle on our stove. I got, I got to hang out with Kwong, um, on the red boat boat. Oh, wow. Um, right off of Phu Quoc on one of the craziest nights here with these fishermen and no one speaks a word of English and they're not really talking to you. And then food comes out and we're literally throwing lines off and just pulling in fish right off the boat. And all of a sudden, there's karaoke machines, and it's a party, and food really like brought us together with no, with these horrible, like crazy language barriers, 
And yeah, one of the craziest nights of my life. I'm doing karaoke and being spun around by this like, five foot captain on this fishing boat. Um, but yeah, big big fan of Redboat Fish Sauce. Um, but yeah, made a terrine. Um, I think worked. You know, those flavors again, not the same botanicals that are in the improved old fashioned, but complementary flavors that really work. And this is a high alcohol beer. Um, Really nice malt backbone. That rye comes through with that little bit of spiciness, but able to cut through the richness where normally you'd think a Saison or an IPA, something to sort of cut through a really fatty terrine. So, and again, on that dish, you're adding a little watercress, a really light watercress salad, some pickled onions, but the beer is able to complement some of those caramelized or Maillard reactions and this like really, you know, beautiful piggy-ness here. Um... But also kind of cut through a lot I, of that richness. I definitely encourage anyone who has never made a pig head terrine at home to try it. Um, it is, it's really, it is a, it is a very rewarding experience. I it's definitely satisfying would, when something yeah. sets like that yep. and you haven't added gelatin, you haven't <laughs> yep. added anything else, and knowing that you've transformed part of this animal into this like binding element is yep. is pretty cool yeah it is and when we started the brooklyn kitchen when we first started having pig butchering classes back in 2007 we didn't have a butcher shop at the time so the meat came with the class so people would sort of who came to the class took home parts of the pig except almost nobody would ever take the head and so for weeks and weeks we would make terrine and we would make head cheese almost every single week and what it meant for us was we would put that head in a big stock pot in the oven on low overnight and then i'd be woken up at like 5 a.m by the like rich smell Mm -hmm. of like porkiness in my apartment and i would like stumble to the kitchen and take it out and leave it on the stovetop turn the oven i'll go back to bed and then get up and it would be cool enough that i could pick the meat and reduce the stock and every i mean i love cheek and it's my my favorite thing and i remember you know people are fighting over it at these parties and every time i i do a roasted pig but if you're able to kind of open that skull up there's so much more meat under in the in the bottom of the jowls along the ridges of the head i mean there's just unbelievable tender rich flavorful meat that you don't really access if you're not making a terrine or you're not boiling that head down or roasting it in different you know so i think that there are i don't even know if they're cuts they're so small it's just these little like (laughs) hidden bits it's like the oyster of a chicken kind of thing where there there are these Magical bits, I would say, that, you're, that people don't get to interact with. You're not going to a restaurant and usually able to get those. Yeah. So, yeah, it's taking these things, and I, I think it's an easy process to do at home. Yeah. And it's fun, and it's it's a little different. Yeah. But it's easy to get a pig head. I'm and sure you it, can provide it, some it, pig we heads. Can, we can absolutely provide pig heads. The Brooklyn Kitchen can provide them. The Meat Hook can provide them. You mentioned in your article, Hudson and Charles. Mm-hmm. You know, just about any any butcher shop in the city, if you ask them, you know, they can get you a pig head. They could, um, and I'm sure that they can also cut it down for you. You know, a whole pig head from a, you know, a modern full size pig is going to be pretty large. And so, if you don't have a giant stock, you could ask them to cut it up for you. And, yeah, and I think that's something. something it's about having conversations with your butchers. It's about knowing where your food's coming from. And all right, the butcher can sell you a hanger or sell you loin or whatever it is, but they get excited. Yeah, when you're they're having do, that conversation sure. and getting to share some of their knowledge and seeing people, you know. Buying trotters, buying heads, buying tails, buying these, what we would call offcuts or odd bits. Like, I, I think that, you know, bring a little joy to your butcher every day if you can. <laughs> well, we're, we're almost out of time. Um, you know, I know you're, you have a baby coming, so congratulations Thank to you, you so and much. Helena. Um, you know, I would tell you as, 
as a as a dad, um, your your job in the early days is to we used to say feed the machine. Mm-hmm. You got to feed the mom, make sure that uh, that she stays happy because she's feeding the kid. And uh, but you know I. I I look forward to seeing you when your child smiles at you for the first time, which is like as a dad for me, that's like, I mean, you know, it's a lot of work and sure it's your kid and you're excited, but like for a while, they're just kind of like this lump. Right. Mm -hmm. And then that first time that they smile at you and you know that they recognize you, it's like, it's amazing. It's the best. I'm very excited. It's the best. And I hear beer really helps to bring in the breast milk and and keep it flowing. So Helene is excited (laughs) to start drinking again, which is awesome. Um, and then you're headed out of town for the for the mash tour. Do you guys have anything else coming up at the brewery or anything else you're working on yourself that you want to mention? Uh, so we run a series called Dinner Party. This year we are focusing on dynamic culinary and beverage spaces. So we'll be doing a great dinner at MoFad, the Museum of Food and Drink, which just opened around the corner uh, with Peter Kim and sort of in getting inspiration from the space. Uh, then Food Works just opened in the Pfizer building. I think the Pfizer building is one of the most interesting hubs of culinary innovation in the city or in Brooklyn. For sure. Uh, so we'll be doing a dinner there and then bringing it back to the brewery to allow people for that third dinner to really interact with the brewery in a different way. So excited for that series. And then come find us at our BQE parties and we'll be doing some food inspired by these interesting exceptional beers that we're putting out so awesome well thanks andrew for for joining me thanks for listening to feast your ears a uh, big thank you to Kristen baylor who's my producer here and david tattashore for engineering and please take a moment to like the show on facebook and itunes and follow us on instagram oh and you can find andrew on instagram at bklyn house chef thank you listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.